You're listening to Cortez Radio, CKTZ 89.5 FM, and the opinions you're about to hear are not necessarily shared by the Cortez Radio Society, its board, staff, volunteers, or membership. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. In his book, My Africa Journey, Winston Churchill wrote, The Kingdom of Uganda is a fairy tale. The scenery is different, the climate is different, and most of all, the people are different from anything elsewhere to be seen in the whole range of Africa. What message I bring back, concentrate on Uganda. A group of 23 Cortez residents just returned from Uganda and neighboring Kenya. They decided to travel this year because the tour company owned by Chris Hartwig's parents is going out of business. Nobody anticipated there would be any complications coming home from Africa. They were in Africa when the first cases of COVID-19 were reported. Chris and Jenny Hartwick came two weeks early so they could do some exploring on their own but the entire group was in Kenya by March 10th. On March 13th, a 27-year-old Kenyan woman returning home from the United States tested positive. The virus reached neighboring Uganda by March 22nd. Some of the Cortez Island contingent visited both countries. When Jenny Hartwick finally flew out of Kenya, there were 25 confirmed cases in that nation. She describes the difficulties leaving. Um, it was it was several days of waking up to emails from KLM saying that our flights had been cancelled, and so this was while we were still in Kenya. So um, you know it was kind of multiple rebooking days, and then part of our group left on Tuesday, and which was, I think, that what was at the 24th. And the morning of the 24th, my mother-in-law and sister-in-law and niece woke up to find that their flight, which left on the 25th, had been cancelled. And um, midnight on the 25th of March, uh, Kenya had made an announcement saying that its borders were closed, permanently, like, done, even to its own citizens. So no international flights out, no international flights in. Like if you were a Kenyan anywhere and you weren't in at home, you had till midnight on Wednesday to get home. And so that was it. There were no flights scheduled out of the country after that Wednesday night. And uh, our flight actually left at 11.59 p.m. So one, one minute to that uh, midnight cutoff. And they obviously caught that because we got an email saying, uh, in light of the circumstances, we've moved your flight forward till 1130. We could make it out. But of course, Tuesday morning, my mother-in-law woke up to, okay, their flights had been canceled. And by now, everything was booked up. So there was nothing. So that was a bit frantic. And they went off to the airport Tuesday evening and managed to get standby out of the country, but had to do a milk run. They flew from Nairobi to Paris, and then Paris to Amsterdam, and then Amsterdam to Vancouver. Now tell me about the trip. Why did you go, and did you do whatever you wanted to do? (laughs) No. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, So my 
father-in-law was a professor at SFU, and years ago, like I think 30 years ago, started going to Kenya with university students as a semester abroad with a whole bunch of other professors, a partnership with McGill. And I don't know all the details on it. I just know that they did that for a number of years, taking students over, and they would do field biology and ecology and then go down to the coast and do marine biology for kind of like a three-month semester abroad program. And he retired, and it kind of became a tourist program that they operated, and they had all the equipment. So we'd actually been before. My husband and I had spent three months in Kenya in 2008, which was perfect timing because I decided I'm never internationally traveling again. The last time I went outside of Canada was 2008 when I went to Kenya, and it was the election violence. There had just been an election, and it was Canada had, again, put out a travel advisory on the country, and it was pretty intense being there then, so we seemed to have timed it quite well. <laughs> but my mother-in-law has continued to go for the last number of years and has continued to run this kind of tourist program. And this was to be her last year. Like she's now approaching 80 and has grandchildren and it's been enough for her. So this was the last year, but she's been going over there for so many years. She's got a whole other side of her life and people have named kids after her and it was our last chance to take our children over to see Nana's other life. She's usually over there for four or five months of every year. And so it turned into an opportunity for us to take any of our friends and family that we had been talking the trip up to for the last 10 years. So my brother came, my niece, my husband's middle brother, and his whole family came, Trig and Laura, their family, like their extended family. So uh, from, and then really good friends of ours as well. So from just the Cortez connection, there were 20, 23 of us. And then from my father, or my brother-in-law's side and some of their friends, there ended up being an additional 20. Was there anything that was great about the trip? Oh, everything was great about the trip. <laughs> Even <laughs> the craziness gives you a great story to tell. Everything was fantastic. We actually went several weeks early, and the way the way it's organized is that it is an official travel program. So everyone was expected to be there March 10th. We had a day to kind of recoup. The group split into two on the 13th. Some went down to the coast. Some went to Uganda. Then we were all going to come back together, do some day trips around the Nairobi area, and then from there we would head to the Masai Mara Nature Reserve, and then back to Nairobi area and then up to Samburu, which is another really well-known and amazing game nature reserve on the other side of the country. So there was a very structured program that we were going to be a part of, but also we decided to come two weeks early. So we actually flew out of Canada February 25th, I guess the 26th, and had a chance to spend a full two weeks prior to the rest of the group arriving. So Trigna and Laura came one week early and joined us, and we just had a chance to go and do some day trips on our own and go to the local market. My kids made friends with all the neighborhood children in the area that we were, so we had just epic play dates in the afternoons, which which was actually fantastic because we were in the country for pretty much exactly a month, and we really got a chance to just relax and 
meet people and then just kind of experience some of the stuff that we wouldn't have had we been just on part of the the program. The downside was that obviously we had to leave before the program was scheduled to end. So we had a chance to go to the coast and go to the Massimara Game Reserve, which is the north end of the Serengeti that comes up through Tanzania. But the group that was in Uganda didn't get a chance to experience any of that. So Bruce would be a great one to talk to about that because he could kind of fill you in on what they did. I asked Bruce Ellingson. So why did you go to Africa? Um, because I was invited to come along by Laura and Trigva after Ginny passed away last fall. It's been an area that I've never visited before, and I, I'm somewhat familiar through documentaries with the East Africa situation around the Serengeti and the wildlife there and stuff like that. So that was part of the plan initially, which didn't end up being executed because of the virus, but that was the initial interest that led me to going and also having something to focus on after losing Ginny. I don't want to intrude on that. If you want to talk about that, you can. About Ginny's passing, you mean? Yeah. Well, I guess the general thing I would say about it was that Jenny's acceptance of the end of her life graciously and and, uh, once she realized there was no treatment available because they couldn't determine where the cancer had arisen from and and basically saying, I'm 78 years old, I've had a wonderful life and if this is the end of it, I can accept that. Made it much more acceptable for herself and, and the rest of us to to go through that process of her end of her life and certainly enabled me to move through the grief of losing her and sort of focusing on that in favor of moving on to relishing and remembering all the good years we had over 50 years together uh, as the focus of anything that brought her to mind. So I think it was a really smooth transition for me to being on my own after enjoying all that time with her. What was it like being with your family in Africa and on the way there and everything? Oh, very good. It was a very positive experience. Is there anything right. that you saw or did there that really stands out that was it was really good to see or do? One of the main things that I wanted to do, which was part of the itinerary initially and did come to pass, was taking part in a habituation of the mountain gorillas to human beings being around them process, which is ongoing there by the rangers that are guarding them and looking after them and studying them and so on. And I and two others were able to get special permits to spend with those rangers about four hours of time with the gorilla group that had a new leader because of having lost the old silverback about a year ago and a new young younger fellow came along who took over the leadership of this group and uh, hadn't been habituated to people being around it, whereas the remainder of the group that he took over had been habituated to people being around and reasonably comfortable with it. But when we finally, after two and a half hours of hiking in up and down over some really rough terrain, uh, got in close proximity with it, he charged us uh, probably I would guess six times, somebody else had eight, but a number of times he was charging us to assert his dominance of the t- of his territory, 
and the rangers who were standing in front of us were uh, by by two or three feet or so. They had us up fairly, the three of us that were with them, up fairly close to the action. Stood their ground and used their machetes to whack on some of the underbrush that was between his charge and us as a group. And he he would back off and and uh, sort of stand, looking looking away, but making making his uh, claim to the territory fairly obvious before he would sort of sidle off and go back to what he had been doing before that charge. First two times it happened, it, it naturally caused me to react by backing up away from his charge and both times tripping over roots and so on, ending up on my butt. But after those two times, then I was with the reassurance of the rangers that the best thing was to just stand up and and uh, face the charge. I was able to do that, so I got a, a good imp- impression of of what was going on, <laughs> which I didn't the first two times when I was looking at the at the sky. But that was really interesting. After after the number of charges that he made to assert his territorial claims, um, he went off probably about the third hour of the four that we were there with that group of gorillas and uh, lay down under a, a quite a large shrub in under the under the branches there and went to sleep. And then there was a couple of the younger members of the group were clambering over him and climbing up in the branches above him and that sort of thing. So he obviously was uh, getting a little more comfortable with humans being in fairly close proximity to him. And the rangers said this habituation process uh, that there that was the first day with this individual silver new silverback that we were and or he was encountering us um, takes about a year before they're fairly comfortable that the group as a whole can be approached by increasing or larger numbers of of visitors under the general permit of that gives access to being in proximity to a group of gorillas for about an hour or so at a time, which is what most of the rest of, the, of our group of 23 had been doing in another area. Mm. So that was really the highlight, I think, for me. Although it was really physically stressful because of the topography that we had to negotiate to get into the vicinity of the group of gorillas and follow them down this ravine as uh, we spent time with them and then had to clamber back all the way back out over it again, back to the starting point, another two and a half hours back. And for a guy who's nearly 80 years old, that was pretty physically challenging. Although I managed to do it with a few stops and starts here and, and resting my leg muscles and recovering my breath and so on. So it was a great adventure, that part of it. The final highlight was seeing a leopard in a tree about 100 feet off the track the last second of the last day we were in Uganda stayed there for the better part of half an hour or more with us taking photographs and just observing his reclining on one of the big limbs on this tree before he finally had enough of us hanging around that close to him and slid down off the tree and into the brush and disappeared. And then actually about an hour hour after that incident, um, we came across two lionesses. This is around 5 o'clock in the afternoon who were setting out to... Uh, do an evening hunt who were about 25 feet off the road that we were traversing and we stopped and they they peeled off after a few moments and and went down to an area about 300 feet away and concealed themselves in the grasses there and and uh, 
were hoping that an antelope would come close enough for them to take a charge at it and see if they could harvest a, a dinner for themselves. Um, a mid-sized antelope did come probably within about 30 feet of them or so on before he finally got extremely cautious and stopped and stood there assessing things for maybe five minutes or so before he finally decided, hmm, this is a bit uncomfortable and I'm backing away from there and off he went. So the lionesses just got up out of the grass and headed back generally in our direction to within about 100 feet of us. And, and then uh, we left them alone and went back to the camp. I guess those, those are probably the most in outstanding physical highlights with different animals in different situations that I experienced. What did you think of the forest? It varied considerably from quite jungly to uh, open savanna on the different... In, in Kenya, before we went to Rwanda on the 13th of March, most of the expeditions we did from the headquarters just north of Nairobi were into fairly open landscape apart from some sections that we drove through to get there, but we were down into the Rift Valley in a couple of situations, and it was quite dry and broad and open and good visibility, but the Rift Valley doesn't have a lot of wildlife in it, scattered wildlife, but but nothing like the Serengeti or the Masai Mara would have if we'd managed to get into that area. So the landscape was totally different than here. There's certainly... Being around the equator there, a lot more variety of plants and animals and birds and everything than, than you see here. And of course, they can be alive and thriving 12 months of the year and propagating themselves and diversifying themselves, evolving into different life forms and so on than we have here and where we're bound by the seasons of the year. So it was a real eye-opener to be into that very different environment and just generally experiencing it. When did you first hear about COVID-19? I was aware of it just from scattered media reports, probably in February. And of course, that was when it was mainly centered in China and uh, things were just developing and the media was starting to pay attention to it, but things hadn't really developed as they have done since the beginning of March and continue to do since then to the degree that was happening while we were away on this expedition to Africa. How did it start coming into play in your trip? A number of the people that were in that group of 23, which did include Mike Hartwick, Chris's brother from Bowen Island, who was one of the main organizers, and another fellow, Joe forget his last name, who was sort of organizing this, the outings in Rwanda and Uganda the five days we were proposed to be there. Uh, the other 21 included the people I've mentioned from Cortez, but also uh, Jenny Hardwick's brother from Powell River and his daughter, and a number of people from the greater Vancouver area who were connected to that family and many of them were in the medical fraternity or medical end of things in the Vancouver area. So they were being kept up to date as we were traveling around. They were being kept up to date with their smartphones and devices on all the developments.
not only in BC but also around the world that kept kept the news flowing about COVID and its spread and the seriousness of it and all the stuff that the media delivered, which I was quite critical of because I thought the media should have been delivering much more factual information for people to assess and decide for themselves just how serious this was much earlier in the conversation that slowly evolved. Can you remember a particular day when it was suddenly very serious? Um, I guess the only thing that really hit us directly was when we headed for the airport in Entebbe to go back to Kenya and found that the Kenyan airspace was closed. They closed their borders because of having a few cases show up in Kenya. And then we had to alter our our plans for the remainder of time and reschedule our return to British Columbia because of that and the likelihood of of, uh, air travel shutting down before too awfully long. That's probably the time it really, really hit home to the, the group of us that this is getting serious and it's going to affect our movements if we don't. And we better respond to that and make some arrangements to shorten our holiday and get back home. I understand a number of your flights were cancelled. Well, the certainly the one back into Kenya was cancelled. Yes, we showed up at the airport and uh, they basically said, no, nope, we're not going to let you in because Kenya's airspace is closed down and, and you can't fly. And that was that. And of course, Kenya Airways basically said we were no shows, so there was no chance of us getting any money back from them because they claimed that we didn't show. Well, we weren't allowed to show. We, we were at the airport, but they wouldn't let us up to the check-in counter to register our presence so they could legitimately say we didn't show. That's a small aside. We'll just have to let that go. That led to interactions with a KLM airline from Holland who we flew with to get out there and we're planning on flying back on the 10th of April with there was a representative who stayed that evening when we were rejected at the Kenya Air Travel desk or before we got there. And he made arrangements for us to reschedule our flight back to BC on the 24th of March. Then, as a group, we decided to go back up to the safari lodge that we had been staying at and continue our activities within Uganda and wait for the 24th to arrive. Well, then, I think it was the following Monday. I think that was probably a Friday that happened, if my memory is correct. The following Monday, one of our group was on the KLM website and found that the 24th flight had been cancelled. And We hadn't been informed of it, but that's how the information came to us. So, of course, then there was a big kerfuffle about, well, what, what's going on here? Why aren't we flying that day? What We're going to have to get in touch with them. So we got back in touch with this fellow at the airport at Entebbe, and he said, no, it had been cancelled, but that KLM was just rescheduling it to the following day, the 25th, but that we would still be on it, and KLM um, committed themselves to making sure that we got out all right. So that was a bit of relief to everybody's concerns at least 95% relief, as much as you can in varying, changing circumstances like that. 
so we went back to the uh, safari lodge and carried on with things in in Uganda until the 25th morning, and then headed down to the airport. And fortunately, everything finally uh, managed to get back onto the plane and head off to Amsterdam and then back to Vancouver and home. The Hartwicks were having a similar experience back in Kenya. Was there ever a point when you wondered if you were going to get back? Oh, completely, yeah. No, because um, once Kenya came down and said, that's it, the borders are closed completely, our flights were still being cancelled. So we had a deadline. Like We knew we had to be out of the country, by midnight on Wednesday the 25th, but we were still in this position where we would all of a sudden wake up in the morning and you'd be getting an email from KLM saying, oops, sorry, your flight's been cancelled. So there was, the last few days were pretty anxious because we were just like, what the heck? And, you know, at, by that point in time, we'd been rebooking our flights for well over a week. Like, as soon as Canada and the States closed their borders to non-citizens, which actually happened after Kenya did it. Uh, Kenya was pretty on the ball with it. But as soon as Canada and the states um, took that action and we got notified of that, um, that was when we started rebooking because that was when all of a sudden we started seeing these flights just disappear. So it was a bit of a, you know, we had the heads up that things were going and we were trying to just find the flight that we could get out. And so you'd think you'd find the flight, and then it would disappear. And then you'd rebook your flight, and then it would disappear. <laughs> so it was a, a bit of a roller coaster for a few days because you'd be thinking, okay, good, we're good. And then, you know, either your flight would disappear or just a portion of your flight would disappear because they were all connected. Like we were flying Amsterdam to Nairobi, or Nairobi to Amsterdam, excuse me, and then Amsterdam to Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for us, we woke up one morning, and of course, the Nairobi Amsterdam portion had disappeared, but the Amsterdam Vancouver part was still okay. So then you're scrambling and you're thinking, okay, well, do I completely rebook my whole flight for another day, or do I find another way to get to Amsterdam via some other country, or what do we do? And which was compounded by the fact that KLM and I'm sure all the other airlines, like everybody was so tapped out that you could not get through to the airlines you'd be on the phone for like three hours and be on hold for 25 minutes and then all of a sudden it would ring and you'd hear somebody and then they'd hang up so we just you couldn't ever find a person to talk to to actually even get help tell me what it felt like when you got off a plane in canada and where in canada did you first get to get off the plane we landed in vancouver it felt good, but I think by that point in time, it was somewhat anticlimactic in the in the sense that we knew we were going to make it home by then. Mm-hmm. And so the sense of relief was less the landing in Canadian soil than more just, I think, getting to the Amsterdam airport and seeing that that flight hadn't been canceled. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we flew the last KLM flight that left from Nairobi, and then we actually got on the last KLM flight from Amsterdam to Vancouver. So that was it. That airline is no longer flying um, any of those routes. And the 
Ugandan group actually was on a similar flight, and they flew from Antebi to Amsterdam at approximately the same time. So we actually met up with the whole group for the first time in nine days kind of thing in the Amsterdam airport at about 6 o'clock in the morning. It was fantastic just to know that everybody was okay and to know that everybody was out. And also it's, you know, we're traveling with our good friends, and we had been with Trig and Laura and the half the point of the trip was to have these experiences together with them and we were separated by a country right just very very nice to uh, to see familiar faces you've been listening to Jenny Hartwick and Bruce Ellingson describe their abrupt departure from Africa before the nations they were visiting closed their borders this program was funded by a grant from the Community Radio Fund of Canada and the Government of Canada's Local Journalism Initiative. This is Roy Hales with Cortez Currents. Goodbye.